0: Father God, you are so good. You are so mighty. We honor you with our words today, with our thoughts, with our actions. Father, we ask that you give us a spirit that is able to hear your word. A spirit that's able to see the things that you want us to see. Father, there's so much going on in this congregation. We thank you for that. But with that comes a lot of responsibility, Father. And I pray that every single person in this room or listening online can see that and figure out how they fit into this work. Father, be with us now as we dig deep into your word, into James. God, we love this time. We're thankful for it. I pray that you will use me I pray that all of the words that, that I might have, try to say, that you will take them away from my lips, and only your words will be there. Father, thank you for this day. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, at this point, I'd like to, oh, she's already up here. Pam Revere is going to read our text this morning. Pam? Good morning, church family. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? Thank you. This morning we're reading from James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Thank you, you may be seated. Thank you, Pam. Some of you might be asking or wondering, man, only three verses, we're gonna get out of here on time or early. But I'm telling you, there is so much packed into those three verses, it's crazy. When, when I first took on the challenge of these verses, I was reading through it, and, and I, I'm sure I'm like most of you. I've read these verses over and over my entire life and certain things stick out. But once you start digging deep, I'm serious. We could do a whole month's worth of lessons on just three, these three verses. But unfortunately, we can't do that. So I'm going to try to pack that in into this one lesson here. But first, I, I want to say and brag a little bit. Are you okay if I brag a little bit? I conducted some peer-reviewed research, okay? Raise your hand if you know what peer-reviewed research is. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a term used in the educational area where I've done some research. I've had a bunch of credible people read it, and they've said yes, this is good. Okay, so the research that I've done, I did this in our uh, church office down on the north side and the south side, and I have gone over this research and over this research. And I am proud to present to you what makes you angry. Come on, that's, that's pretty good, right? What makes you angry? So what I did is I went through the office and I just looked at people and I said, hey, Darren, what makes you angry? And he said, it's things like this. Um, where, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but here are some of the results that I found from my peer-reviewed research. What makes you angry? People who clip their fingernails in public. Yeah? Uh, thank you, Troy. Okay? So if I see anybody out there with their clippers, we're going to have a problem. Uh, drivers not paying attention at a traffic light. Amen. <laughs> okay. It's a green light, and they do not move. It's like, come on, pay attention. Um, those who attempt to finish your sentences but get it wrong. <laughs> Don't act like you know me. I, I'm, when you think I'm gonna zig, I'm gonna zag. And sometimes I zag just to throw you off a little bit. So don't, don't try. Uh, spitting in public, you know, like really getting your nose into it, that kind of spit. And it's just kind of gross, right? Uh, I promise it gets better from here. Uh, moving chairs on the floor instead of lifting them so there's not an obnoxious scooting sound. And I think one of the worst places about that is El Agave. They've got super heavy chairs, and you scoot them, and everybody in the building goes, what just happened? And it was just me moving a chair. Um, those who do not text you back in a timely manner, because what I have to say is important, and you should know that, all right? Uh, left lane drivers. Okay, Are you seeing a pattern here with driving? Left lane drivers, if you don't know what that is, is you're in the left lane and you really shouldn't be because you're going the speed limit or under and that's just not okay, right? You notice I said speed limit and under? Yeah, those people are the ones that go all the way around you in the right lane to pass you just to turn 500 feet in front of you. I mean, it is what it is, Right? All right, the other thing that makes people mad is improper English, yo. Thank you. I was worried about that one not being funny, and it got some laughs. All right, people who drive 5 to 10 mile, miles per hour under the speed limit, okay? Um, I don't care if you want good gas mileage. Just go the speed limit. Um, using the last of something and placing the empty container back on the shelf or in the fridge. I... Do people really put empty milk containers in the fridge? I I don't know. I think that's a thing, but I I don't know. That's just kind of weird. And then lastly, people who replace the toilet paper incorrectly. And if you think I'm joking, that's not a joke. You all take that very seriously. And I know some of you go into other people's houses and switch it. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Is it under, is it over or under for you guys? Raise your hand if it's over. How about under? Oh, sorry, unders. All right. Man, that was fun, okay? All right. These are very humorous examples of how quickly we can lose our cool if we're not careful, right? For things that don't really matter at the end of the day is there toilet paper there yes that's a good thing okay are you getting where you need to get on the road safely yes that's a good thing so we just need to take a look at ourselves and see what really is the problem and as silly as these may as these may be there is an underlying problem that we all struggle with right there's an underlining problem that we all struggle with. And in light of our text today, we are not good at being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And I think everybody in here would agree that at some point, we fall into that category. In fact, it's not really even in our nature to do those things. We are inclined to not listen, to speak first and become angry very quickly. And I think what we're going to find through this lesson is that it's an internal, or heart issue that we're talking about here today. It's not the person that's driving 5 to 10 miles per hour under the speed limit. It's not the person clipping their fingernails while I'm preaching this sermon. Okay, It's more than that. It's deeper than that. So I want to introduce to you some people in the Bible who too had problems with these, with with being slow slow to speak, quick to hear, and slow to anger. All right, a great example of this: Genesis four, one through ten. We see the example or the story of Cain towards his brother Abel. Okay, both of the brothers brought um, offerings to the Lord, and clearly the Lord liked one more than the other, to the point where, man. Cain killed his brother Abel because he reacted in the split of the second and was not able to be slow to anger. Another example we see is Exodus 2, verses 11 and 12. We got Moses who kills an Egyptian. Now, I know that Moses was angry about some some injustice that was happening, And, and injustice is something that we can get upset about, but how far do we take that? At what point do we allow the Lord to have vengeance? Well, Moses took that opportunity himself, and he killed an Egyptian. And poor Moses, he's on here twice. Uh, Numbers 20, 10 through 12, Moses strikes the rock twice. It's not what God asked him to do. But because he was upset with the people that weren't listening to him or God, Moses tapped that rock twice made the water flow f- from it that way. And we think, well, he, you know, he did so much to believe and to have faith, and, and, he, and they got water, but he didn't do it the way God asked him to. And that was the problem. He was too quick to be angry. Numbers 22, 22 through 23, got a really strange story here. Balaam and his donkey. And as you know, Balaam just starts Beating his donkey because he stops in the middle of the road and he won't go. And of course, if we can't control a donkey, we're not doing good in life, right? We got to be able to control our donkey. So he beats him and he beats him and he beats him. And finally, Balaam realizes that, oh man, there's something more that meets the eye, right? And he realizes that maybe I wasn't listening, maybe I wasn't hearing. Maybe I was too quick to become angry. And John, 18,4 through 11, this is, a, this is kind of an interesting story. I mean, Peter, he goes gladiator on these guys, right? He takes his, his sword and he cuts off the ear of the Roman soldier because of what they were doing to Jesus and about to do to Jesus. How did Jesus respond to that? He put it back on. I've never been able to do that. That's pretty cool. But man, just that quick reaction. Again, we might think that, hey, that was great. Peter was ready to go. He was defending his Lord. But there's a way to do that, right? There's a way to do that. The religious leaders became very angry with Jesus. And so we're going to look at a few verses here, Mark 3, 1 through 6. Uh, Jesus heals a withered hand on the Sabbath day. Dun, dun, dun. He did this great thing, and the religious leaders got upset. They were so angry. Another example is Luke 15, 1 and 2. Jesus is criticized for eating with sinners, You know, the religious leaders saw who he was eating with and they thought no one should be eating with them. They don't deserve the time. They don't deserve that meal. They became angry. Another one, Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. Jesus forgives a paralyzed man's sins. And who in the world can do that on Sabbath day? Nope. So they got angry. We've got Mark Go more. Matthew 21, 12 through 13. Jesus clearing the temple of the money changers and the sellers. They became angry. They wanted to plot to kill Jesus. Mark 7, 1 through 23. Jesus challenges their traditions and emphasizes on toward rituals while neglecting matters of the heart. Jesus constantly was going against those cultural norms because he was there to change things and usher in a new way. So the question I have is what if they had been quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger? How could all of the situations that we just looked at been a little bit different how could it have been different? You know, they were so mad, these religious leaders, that ultimately they, they crucified him. Anger is a real thing. It's a, it's a true emotion. And, and we're going to, you know, the Bible addresses it. But what I don't want is for us to be afraid of anger. To think that it's a sin to, to become angry. Because it's something that we're going to, to encounter. We just have to learn how to master it. Jesus was the best at it. I mean, he had quippy responses back to them. He used their own words against them. He quoted scripture. At times when necessary, he just left the situation and got out. So what if they had been quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anchor? How would this be different? And what does that even mean? Is anger the real emphasis of this section of the chapter? I submit to you that it's, it's not. Now, on the surface, it looks like it. Because anger, it's an easy thing to talk about. Because we all experience it. We all don't do it very well. And so our first inclination is to really focus in on the anger part. But I think that our real emphasis comes from verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So, we're told in verse 21 to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. So, let's look at those words. Let's look at those words for a minute uh, just to kind of better understand what James is talking about and, and where we have seen these words before. So, the Greek word for filthiness is raperos. And in the Hebrew text, it's, it is Nadah, And this word is used in Zechariah 3, 3 through 4. I'll read that to you. It's not on the, on the screen. but Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Okay, so the same word that we're we're getting, filthiness in the New Testament, can be traced back to the filthiness that we're talking about in Zechariah with the filthy garments. And this idea that we need to get rid of them. So scripture uses filthy garments as a metaphor for sin. But right after this verse that I read just a minute ago, right after he's given new vestments, we see in verse 6, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts and will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So, we're given this example of, of one having filthy garments, and what happens when those filthy garments are taken off and new vestments are put on? We make an identity change. We become somebody different, somebody new, and that's a beautiful thing. In literary tradition, anytime a character changes clothes, and in this case, removing the filthy garments, the character's making a, an identity change. Doesn't that sound right with, with our, our relationship with Christ? And our putting him on as our Lord and Savior. When we get rid of the filthy garments and receive the pure vestments. We should be making tangible changes in our life. That to the outside will show that we are, we are a new person. We are different than we were before. And so the Greek word for wickedness here in James 1.21 is the word Kakia. This word refers to a quality of being morally or socially bad, evil, or wicked. And so we see the same Greek word used in James in a few different places in the, Old, in the New Testament. Uh, for example, Matthew 22, 18, But Jesus, aware of their malice, okay, that's the word we're looking at, malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Mark seven twenty two says, Coveting. Wickedness, that's the word we're looking at there Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness 2 Corinthians twelve twenty. For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish And that you, might, you may find me not as you wish That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility Okay, That's the word we're looking at here Hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder and lastly, 1 Peter 2.1, So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Again, these are examples of the same Greek word that James is using from other texts. And so we couldn't go much further without also looking at the term meekness. Meekness in the Greek is Proutes. I don't know if that's right. I, I know the words right. I don't know if that's how you say it. But proutes. this is often translated as gentleness or meekness. So in Matthew 5, 5 it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Galatians 5:22-23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness self-control. Against such things there is no law. Ephesians 4, 1 and 2 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Colossians three twelve. put on then God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, gentleness, and patience. First Timothy 6.11 says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Guys, the, the, the New Testament is flooded with this word. And so James is talking to his, his audience That would know these words and is trying to relate to them in a way that they'll understand. But think back to the religious leaders that we discussed a little bit ago. Had they put their filthiness and rampant wickedness away? Did they have a spirit of meekness? I mean, we're talking about very educated people, right? They are the cream of the crop, People go to them for the answers, concerns, judgments. But I think we can see through their anger, through their inability to see who Jesus really was, they weren't able to put off the filthiness, the rampant wickedness, and have a a posture of, of meekness. Their ability to receive the implanted word of God was tainted. Could this possibly be why they were so dumbfounded, confused, angry when Jesus said these things or acted in those ways? Because they couldn't see who he was. They couldn't understand who he was. If this filthiness and rampant wickedness is in our heart, our mind, our soul, then we too are not going to be able to properly receive with meekness the implanted Word of God. So that's kind of our question today is, how do we do that? So how do we practically engage the Word by receiving the Word? What barriers hinder us from receiving the word? Our point number one today is we must engage the word by being quick to listen. Again, what what does that mean? Naturally, if you are quick to listen, you are taking a posture of humility. You have the option to speak up and react hastily, but then the question becomes, is that beneficial? Is that the way we should be? As Moses was preparing God's people to enter the promised land, he gave them a prayer called the Shema. And the prayer begins, Hear, O Israel. Right from the get-go of that prayer, hear is the first word used. Because Moses is trying to get them, the people of Israel, those who are wandering and wandering and wandering to hear. There's something about that hear that is so important. For the Hebrew, it wasn't just to listen. It wasn't just to hear it and move on. It was to take what you've heard and make it a part of your, your being, to make it a part of who you are, to really dig deep and find out, how can I be better at hearing? And as the years continued in the wilderness, we see that the people struggle more and more with listening to the Lord. Later in the Old Testament, Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. This verse means a lot when you consider all that David was dealing with in his life. He was being pursued constantly, right? He, King Saul wanted to kill him. He wanted to make sure that David wasn't going to be an issue, that he wouldn't usurp him as king. But David found a way to to listen, to be in those moments and to be still. Because if we're being still, we're listening, we're hearing. That would have been so hard, very difficult in those moments. But think about all the clarity that God gives us in the stillness, in the quiet, in the listening. When did God first speak with Samuel? When, was he, when did he speak to Samuel in that one moment? 1 Samuel 3, 3-4 shows us that Samuel was sleeping in the temple when God spoke to him. It says, the lamp of God was not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. He came to Samuel in that quiet moment. I know it doesn't necessarily say he was sleeping, but at least we can get on the same page and say he was quiet. He was listening. And he was able to hear God speak to him. You know, there's so much noise in our life. I know you guys know that. Just think about everything that goes on. You think about how it's pretty quiet in here, but if you're, if you're really listening, you can still hear noise, right? You've got an occasional sneeze, a cough. You can hear the air conditioner. We haven't heard nail clippers, which is good, um, but there's noise, even in the quiet. And so I was doing some, just, just some research, and I looked up well, now I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me go back a little bit. We, we need to reorder our lives so that we have time to listen. In my everyday, I rarely listen to, to music or podcasts while driving in my vehicle. I know some of you gasped right then, but most of that time I just used to sit quietly, meditate, pray, and try to listen to God. Which is kind of cool because then I'm less apt to get angry about the five mile per hour under people. But think about it. Think about when you're at your house. Sometimes when Megan and I are cleaning or whatever, or doing whatever, we have stuff off in the background. Whether it's a podcast, the TV, something in the background for background noise. I like to sleep with a fan on because I like the noise. Okay, We fill our lives with, with Noise. And the wrong kind of noise is going to prevent us from being still and from meditating. And here's another illustration of how, noise, how much noise there is around us. Have you ever listened to recordings uh, when you're trying to, to study or whatever of just nature? You know, you might hear uh, waterfalls. You might hear uh, birds chirping. And, and, they're, and they're playing light music underneath that. So that's a thing. That's a thing. Uh, Those are called field recordists, and if you didn't know that, I mean, you're ahead of me, because I didn't know that. But I read an article that for every minute, a field recordist wants to use of nature sounds without human interference, such as airplanes, cars, people, or whatever, they have to record for at least four minutes. So in other words, to obtain one hour of uninterrupted nature sounds, they might need to spend roughly four hours recording in the field just so they can edit out any extra noise. That's kind of fascinating to think about just being out in the country. You think there's no one around, but you do hear those airplanes flying over, right? And that's just one example, but there's noise, So what I'm suggesting to us and how we practically do that is we be intentional about spending time with the Lord in quiet, in meditation, in prayer, and he will speak to you. Just like he spoke to Samuel and Samuel was able to hear it, he will speak to you too. But you and I have to be willing and ready to do so. Secondly, we engage the word by being slow to speak. Who here, or listening online, enjoys having the first word? Anybody? Is Robert Pernell the only one, really? Okay, thanks Robert, I appreciate you. Robert likes to have the first word in our GLC class. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Oftentimes, we like to have the first word because of what that means, Having the first word is a sign of control or power. We can assert power or knowledge by having the first word. I can show you how important I am by having that first word. You're not speaking before me. I've got to have the first word. For the most part, we do love to have the first word. But what does that really say about us? Is that really a good thing? And so when we look at what the Bible says about being slow to speak, we see a few examples here. Proverbs 17, 27, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. That's pretty cool. Secondly, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Ecclesiastes 5 2. And lastly, Matthew 12 36 and 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Funny story when I was first starting out my youth ministry in, in Blackwell, Oklahoma, I was finally allowed to go to elders' meetings. Ah, that was so cool. And I felt in my youth that I have something to say. I have a viewpoint. What I have to say is important. And so I would speak up in those elders meetings. And I remember after the first couple, the uh, lead pastor came and he and I were really good friends. We had known each other for a long time. He said, you know, Todd, sometimes not saying something is cool. And he said, you ever notice this particular elder who doesn't say a whole lot? I said, yeah. And I said, or he said, what goes through your mind when he does speak up? And I said, you better believe we're all listening. Because he was a man of few words. But when he spoke, it was important. It was well thought out. It wasn't just a, ah, oh, I've got to get my, my two cents worth in. And I think that we spend a lot of time being too busy trying to figure out what to say or how best to get our first word in. And then we're not ready to hear what God has to say. So do you see how being slow to speak is connected to being quick to hear? Well, number three, we engage the word by being slow to anger. Being slow to anger. If we have done well to be quick to hear and slow to speak... Then we will have given ourselves a better chance to be slow to anger. And by being quick to hear and slow to speak, we have put, our, put on a posture of humility. We have decided that we are not the most important person in the room. We've decided we are not the smartest person in the room. Like I said earlier, anger is not a sin, it's a natural emotion. And it's important to note that James doesn't tell us not to become angry. He says to be slow to anger. So clearly we've got some good examples of Jesus being angry, right? So right then and there we know that it's not a sin to be angry. But we need to look at Jesus and how he, what he did. So Mark 3, 5, And he looked around at them with anger, grieved. At their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus was angry with the religious leaders about how they were treating this, this man, at their, at their hardened heart. That's a good time to be angry. But how did Jesus react? He didn't slap him in the face. He didn't give him a hand gesture that we all know is inappropriate. He didn't think in his head foul things. I didn't say it, but maybe I thought it. You know, But Jesus didn't do that. Another example of Jesus getting upset is in John 2, 14 through 15. It says, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Imagine that scene. Imagine seeing. If if we were followers of Jesus in that time, seeing this man who was always so calm, cool, and collect, who's always so gentle and meek, all of a sudden rage out and go hulk on them. But in a good way, right? It's the heart behind why Jesus got angry. It was Jesus' ability to act on that anger in a righteous way. In both of those instances, we see his anger motivated by his concern for righteousness and the honor of God. Those are good things to be angry about. His anger is a response to human hypocrisy, callousness, and the distortion of God's intended purposes. That is something to get angry about, amen? Not convincing enough, amen? Again, but in the right way, the right motives. Can you see how if we were in Jesus' shoes we would probably end up taking it too far. Our sin and selfishness would have likely shown its face and our anger would then be tainted. So for a minute, I want to talk to you about what, it, what our body does when we get angry. And there's nine steps here about anger. When we experience anger, our body undergoes a complex physiological response involving various hormones and neurotransmitters. I sound pretty good, don't I? Uh, this response is often referred to as the fight-or-flight response, which is a natural survival mechanism. And here's a general overview of what happens. So number one is the amygdala. And I actually had Google say that to me, so I was saying it right. The the amygdala. The amygdala is a part of the brain responsible for processing emotions, perceives a potential threat. It sends signals to the other parts of the brain, including the hypo hypothalamus number two the hypothalamus activation this is where we this triggers the fight-or-flight response this response prepares the body to either confront the perceived threat or flee from it next we get an adrenaline release the adrenal glands release adrenaline also known as the epinephrine into the bloodstream adrenaline increases heart rate dilates airways and redirects blood flow to muscles preparing the body for physical action Next, we get the cortisol release. The hypothalamus also signals the adrenal glands to release cortisol, a stress hormone. Cortisol increases energy availability by mobilizing glucose from the liver and suppressing non-essential functions like digestion. Number five, increased heart rate and blood pressure. Adrenaline causes the heart to beat faster, increases blood flow, and this can lead to elevated blood pressure. Muscle tension, muscles tense in preparation for action. This can manifest as clenched fist, a tense jaw, or other bodily tension. Number seven, dilated pupils. Adrenaline causes the pupils to dilate, allowing more light to enter the eyes and improving focus. Eight, heightened senses. The senses become more acute, helping to detect potential threats. And lastly, emotional experience. As part of the body's response, neurotransmitters like dopamine and noradopamine, uh, no, sorry, norepinephrine can contribute to intense emotions like anger, aggression, and the desire to take action. And as many of you know, these things are not bad. God set us up to have this in our body for a purpose, but for the right purpose. So, can you see that if you're not able to hone these things in, it would be easy to fly off the handle, to maybe go too far with your words or with your actions because of these things. So on the flip side of that, I want to look at when we experience calmness or meditation, what happens. We have an activation of the parasympathetic nervous system. And this nervous system is responsible for the body's rest and digest functions. It counteracts the effects of the sympathetic nervous system that is responsible for that fight or flight and promotes relaxation and recovery. Number two, decreased heart rate and blood pressure. Number three, reduced muscle tension. Muscles tend to relax, relieving tension and promoting a feeling of ease. Number four, enhanced digestion. Number five, Balanced hormones, stress hormones like cortisol decrease, allowing the body's hormone levels to return to balanced state. Improved mood, the release of endorphins and other feel-good chemicals can contribute to a positive mood and reduce feelings of stress or anxiety. Number seven, focused breathing, Deep and slow breathing is often a key component of meditation. This type of breathing can activate the, the vagus nerve, which plays a crucial role in calming the body's stress response. Number eight, brain changes. During meditation or calm states, brainwave patterns tend to shift. Alpha brainwaves associated with relaxation and a calm yet alert state of mind can become more prominent. Nine, can cognitive effects, calm and meditative states often lead to increased mindfulness, improved concentration, and a heightened sense of self-awareness. And lastly, it's not on there, but stress reduction. Regular meditative practices have been linked to lower levels of stress and anxiety over time, as well as potential long-term positive effects on overall health. Again, God designed our bodies for this, and which state of being do you think is most conducive to receiving in meekness the implanted word of God? I, th- I think, yes. I mean, I think both are good and both can, can, can bring about some goodness. But man, when we're in that meditative state, when we are calm, cool, and collect, I think that we're going to be able to more accurately get what God is giving us. So, I want to begin closing with one final example. We have, we, have, we have gone over a lot of things today, a lot of scripture, but this one in particular, I think, will, will very nicely put a bow around this whole package. I want to begin this closing with going back to the garden. Adam and Eve were in paradise, were they not? They were literally living in the presence Of God walking with him talking with him they had every need taken care of I mean this is a really nice picture that's been painted right like we long for that we spent all of revelation looking to where to where we're going and what God has planned because of this wonderful thing we want to go back to this perfect state now we don't know how long the enemy was in the garden but we do know that in Genesis 3, everything changes. We often think that it was the act of eating the fruit that was the sin. And it certainly was a part of the problem, but something happened before that. Genesis 3, 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that was the moment right there that changed history. This is the moment where it became a heart issue. In that moment, Eve justified herself in believing the lie, and she ate of the fruit. And then Adam likewise did the same. And in that moment, they allowed filthiness and rampant wickedness into their heart. Something that was promised to give them life and knowledge and understanding actually ended up giving them death. Therefore, they were no longer able to fully receive the implanted word of God. Brothers and sisters, are you ready to receive the implanted word of God? Does your life, your mind, your heart, your spirit reflect being ready to receive the implanted word of God? Or... Are we much like the religious leaders of Jesus' time, where we look pretty good, we've got answers, we pray, we worship, we do our thing, we tithe, we, we give money, we help people, but we're not putting away our entire filthiness and rampant wickedness.